he was the most frightening person I have ever met. And bear in mind, I was once stuck in a lift with Mad Frankie Fraser for three hours. And there was a man who didn't like confined spaces, I can tell you. I've never seen rage in anyone like I saw in him. Now he had evil inside of him. Absolute, pure evil. If he liked you, that was a blessed relief. See, I'd seen him try and rip someone's ear off just for daring to comment about his call I once saw him kick a lawyer in the throat and then attempt to skin him alive with a letter opener. It's still haunts me to this day. He had the most impeccable table manners of any inmate in Pentonville. It was a joy to watch him eat lunch. He's the most unique criminal I've ever come into contact with in all my years as a barrister and a judge on the Queen's bench. Such a strange boy. He was haunted uh, almost. Oh, he put the willies right up me. And I placed my thumbs over each other's eyes. And I slowly began to squeeze. And I carried on the squeezing harder and deeper, harder, feeling his eyeballs squish as they burst in tandem. Sickly liquid oozing down my fists. Resemble a raspberry panacotta. My name is Magnus Finch. I'm a writer, a journalist and broadcaster. For as long as I can remember, I've been consumed with a desire to unearth original and compelling stories. Over the past few decades, I've highlighted corruption at the highest level of politics, injustices in the legal system, corporate irresponsibilities at boardroom level and international animal rights abuses. But nothing can beat the thrill you get unearthing a story about a character that is so engrossing and utterly unique, unlike anyone else that you've come across before. That sort of story and character comes along once on a blue moon, if you're lucky. A couple of years ago, thanks to a work colleague who was emigrating, I received some old boxes, uh, one of which contains a series of forthright interviews with an extraordinary character. He was called Queenie. How had such a notorious and unique character remained so completely under the radar? He was last sighted at a bare-knuckle boxing fight in Gravesend, Kent in 2010, following his last known prison term in Belmarsh, a Category A jail, where he was incarcerated for five years. There have been no recorded sightings since this incident, and with no official death certificate or any other recent sightings, the question of where is Queenie now still hangs in the air. We're two episodes into the world of Queenie, his family and those that helped shape his personality as a younger man. Now what has emerged thus far as a life lived out against a rarefied background, being brought up in a gradually dilapidating rambling country house with a gambling addicted alcoholic father and a mother struggling to cope with his long-term affair with a younger Russian concubine. It's pretty run of the mill, right? Well, we are edging now toward the point in his life where things changed completely. Episode 3, The Road to Parkhurst.
Horatio Aloysius Smallbridge, the 11th Baron of Billingborough, now only answering to the sole moniker of Queenie, graduated from Balliol College, Oxford in June 1983 with the second-class honours in ancient history. The following clips of Queenie are taken from the interviews conducted by my friend and colleague Grant McGregor back between 2001 and 2003. My degree was utterly useless unless you are seeking employment in the Greek Antiquities Department of the British Museum or decided to accept the offer of shacking up with Philoxenos, a very welcoming history professor with a charming clifftop villa on the island of Rhodes and a forest of Chester that one could get lost in. As was so often the case, a public school and Oxford education led straight to a job in private finance. Thanks to an Oxford connection, he was interviewed for the position of junior equities trader for the private banking firm of Duncan Lorry, based in London's exclusive Belgravia district. It's Queenie again, talking about the job. What attracted me to the job was the fact that it was based not in the city of London, which I found so very, very vulgar. You must remember, since the 80s, the actual Britain, Unfortunately, the rise of the Essex trader had begun brash, oafish brutes with their market stall vernacular boosting about money and throwing it around with a plebeian glee. Suffice it to say, that was not for me. Duncan Lorry, you were an old firm in Belgravia, behind a discreet door, a lovely little news of Grosvenor Square. For several months, I rather enjoyed my employment, starting on a healthy basic salary as a junior equities trader. And where were you living at this time? I was renting rooms in the more unfashionable northern end of the park in Bayswater. Normally, I would have avoided this rather gloomy, prostitute-ridden backwater. However, my living quarters were handsome, well-proportioned, and thanks to the fact that they were owned by the Diocese of the Bishop of Winchester, I was paying a pepcorn rent. So, here was a rather scarred young man, recently graduated from one of the best universities in the world, and working at a very prestigious private bank in the heart of London. All seemed to be going pretty well for Queenie. But things were about to change. Drastically. After Hubert, my father set up his fetid love nest with the vile Russian praying mantis, leaving dear Mama to cope in the big house alone. I could see this was the beginning of the end for Mama. Years of mental torture, born from living with him, had chipped away at her sanity and her faculties. She retreated in the haze of a smoke-filled kitchen to make more and more mayonnaise. Mayonnaise that no one would eat! And the house, where there must be more and more expensive to run. Exactement. The roof. It was leaking so much it was more colander than little canopy. The plumbing growled like an angry bear being tortured in a metal box. And the wiring... Of the entire house. Well, 
turned the whole thing into some kind of lottery. Every time you switched on a lamp, it was 50-50 if you'd get a deep bit of electrical jiggery-pokery up your arm. I was keen to track down anyone that worked with him during his time at Duncan Lorry. After several dead leads, I managed to make contact with Robert Delacour, now a semi-retired stockbroker. Uh, I met with Robert at his club in Mayfair. Yeah, you wouldn't say that we were close friends, but our desks were positioned opposite one another at the firm. What was your overriding memory of him? He was definitely odd. Odd? Yes, odd. Something about him was not right, and not just because he dressed flamboyantly or spoke in a uniquely preened way. He was... He was preoccupied. He would stare into the middle distance quite a lot, or like he was daydreaming. More focused than that, like he was scheming. And of course, he was. And did you socialise much? Well, I certainly did. We various were colleagues, but he wasn't into the f- social aspect of the firm. And this was the 80s, so there was a lot of money around, you know. So we were out spending a lot of the time burning the candle at both ends and in the middle too. So he never came out with you? I can remember a couple of occasions when he did, but he'd just be sat on his own, just taking it all in, observing. Actually, wait. What? There was an occasion, and we were at some discotheque in the West End, and one of the gentlemen on the door, a bouncer, he thought it'd be fun to pick on him, because, of course, he was dressed differently to all of us. He had a velvet jacket and a hat. It's not exactly how you dress up to go out dancing. So there was an altercation? Sort of. It was over very quickly. Now, I think I was already making my way into the club, but I I did hear that a bouncer had tried to take his fedora off of his head, and Queenie turned on his heels with speed, head-butted him on the bridge of the nose, and he went down. And then Queenie just stood on his chest, making some weird victory cry. Like some bird of prey. People said it was over very quick, but so weird. When he was arrested at the firm, in full view of everyone, that must have been something of a surprise. Yes and no. Yes, that it happened at all, and no, because, well, if anyone would have committed a crime within the trading floor, the smart money would have been on Queenie. No doubt. It was just so weird. It was inevitable that they would find out. However, it was the inhumanity with which they dealt with the matter that was so distressing. No warning, no discussion, no old-fashioned punishment administered to the baby bum flesh by the birch. Oh, his vultures called in PC plod, and I was arrested and led from my desk in handcuffs 
like some sort of savile-like nonce caught with a hard drive full of filth, I shouted back at the assembled throng of ghoulish onlookers. Watch your back, Mr. Binkman, because I am going to get you. I will hurt you, all of you. Mark my words. And I was escorted away, staring at my first stretch at Her Majesty's pleasure. My name is Jonathan Bryce. Uh, lawyer still practicing. Now, I was calling to represent Queenie on his arrest in 1985. Back then, I was junior brief. My father had been previously looking after his mother's affairs for um, um, some time. And did you have any dealings with Queenie prior to his arrest? None at all. My father had mentioned him in passing, so I was aware of him, of course. But by the time his parents divorced, he was already an adult, so wasn't cited in in the settlement. Queenie maintained that the settlement was meagre, but she did eventually win control of the house and the estate. She did, against my father's advice. We knew that there are unimaginably huge gambling debts and numerous bad business investments, but sentimentality was clouding Petronella's judgment regarding the house, and so too her health. She simply wasn't listening to reason. My father did as instructed and fought hard, and she did win control of the house. However, Hubert uh, had done very well to conceal. There was a lot of remortgaging that had been going on uh, several times over in order to pay for his gambling habit. And the place was frankly more of a liability to keep on. Uh, within a short time, even with the added nefariously acquired monies from her son, it wasn't long before it all went to seed. I'd imagine there were employees to pay and the upkeep on other houses on the land too. Uh, exactly. The whole thing was a barely mess. Um, and she couldn't cope. Eventually a firm of receivers was called in, which were ignored. And things turned ugly and very litigious. And that's when Queenie turned against lawyers. Oh, his blinkered rage. It just lumped us all in it together. Oh, I can imagine your first meeting with him being a little awkward. Absolutely. Chilling. I was called to Charing Cross Police Station where he was being detained. He was sat in the interview room with his hat cocked smoking a cigarillo with a plastic tip filter. And he just stared at me for several minutes and said, in a very cold and calculated way, How much I loathed lawyers. They were the very lowest of the low, even lower than politicians, perhaps lower still than estate agents. They preyed on the weak. They made money from misery with no compunction. They reveled in stringing out disputes without a care for those involved, instead delighting in the knowledge that the only party making anything were them. So I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but he did say his view of me was somewhat more favourable than it would be for someone he had no previous knowledge of. He spoke about my father and the work that he did for his mother, he said that it ensured 
that, uh, well, he didn't go for me the moment that I walked through the door. He could see I was nervous. I was shaking like a dog in the middle of a... You get the picture. And then he laughed. He laughed loudly. I'll, I'll never forget that. And then when he stopped, he said to me that this would be over very quickly, as there was no case to speak of, and that he would be admitting to everything. Everything? Absolutely everything. He'd been carrying on for a while, the embezzlement. He was pretty good at hiding it. He'd set up a shell company in the Cayman Islands, a bogus company with his mother and himself as directors. He transferred monies to a Luxembourg bank account, which were then funneled into his mother's account in the UK. He was particularly fastidious. All transactions were recorded. His accounting was something, something to behold, I can tell you. But it was the large theft, the, the big amount, which landed him in his present predicament. And for how much? Uh, three million pounds. Wowzers, it's quite the sum now, but back then in 1985, that would have been eye-watering. Indeed. He knew that it would only be a matter of time before that level of embezzlement was, of course, red-flagged. But I knew my motives were entirely justified. I did not commit the crime to purchase some vulgar villa on the Volga or charter some ocean-going yacht of scrofulous provenance or... I did it to help Mama. After she was left stranded, swimming in a sea of unmanageable debt. The poor woman declined so rapidly that she was a husk. I tell you, a husk! Completely incapable of doing anything for herself. Utterly reliant on others. So, we know that Queenie felt his actions were entirely justified, and he was more than happy to hold his hands up and admit guilt. We know that he's well known for ranting and raving against lawyers and bankers. But was this rage against them really justified? And I wanted to know what happened to the house that made him quite so angry. Jonathan Bryce, Queenie's Brief, addresses this question. When the receivers came in to seize the house and remaining assets, there was, by that point, nothing anyone would have done. He did, but my father advised that it would be futile, which, of course, he didn't like. Well, he stripped him down to his undergarments, tied him to a captain's chair, and poured a very expensive bottle of brandy all over him, and then threatened to set him alight. But my father was a good talker, fine bearer stern. He eventually did make him see sense. With huge debts, which he knew his mother couldn't cope with, especially with her health spiralling out of control, he realised that selling the estate to cover these constantly increasing costs was... Regrettably, the only option. The house was boarded up, left empty month upon month, left to fester away like Luton. Eventually, it was sold to the best Western hotel chain, who turned it into a country retreat with confidence facilities and spa. Oh, 
can you imagine such a thing? Lower middle class people taking a break for the weekend in my old home. Lounging around the pool in the former orangery in cheap toweling robes and complimentary slippers before sitting down to an overpriced and under-seasoned carvery meal in the former library served by East European staff that know nothing of the finer points of silver service. That is what became my hope. I would rather have seen it raised to the ground after a firebomb attack. This sort of humiliation. I know that your father recently passed on. Good riddance. Right, I'm curious to know, did he try and make peace at the end? Do you know what my father left me in his will? Anything nice? An antique suit of armor, incomplete. A radiogram, broken. And a bulwarker. Home gym appliance still boxed. The court case followed in 1986, and it was brief. His full admission of guilt and culpability for the charge of embezzlement reduced his sentence to 26 months, and he was instructed to be taken from the Old Bailey to Her Majesty's Prison Parkhurst. Queenie was on his way to serve his first, but certainly not his last prison term. <clears throat> My name is Leslie Cameron, and I was the governor of Her Majesty's Prison Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight. I served as governor between 1994 and 2003. Can I begin by asking what kind of prison is Parkhurst? It is a Category B prison for men. A Category B Famously, it held vulnerable prisoners and also sex offenders and ordinary prisoners in mixed units. During my time, it was regarded as a very progressive and highly successful institution. So when you say successful, how do you measure that? Success is measured in terms of re-offence and also the number of offences taking place whilst prison terms are being served. Those misdemeanours could end up adding time onto sentences. Under my tenure, those numbers were all down, and that was something I was very proud of indeed. I presume there are always going to be prisoners who have no intention of adhering to the law, even whilst behind bars. Oh, quite. The serial offenders, many of whom spend more time incarcerated during their adult life than free on the streets. Was Queenie such a prisoner? Not initially, no. He arrived a very different person to the angry and violent man who left us six years later. And bear in mind, he was only in to serve a few years for a financial crime, but racked up additional months and years due to what can only be described as a lust for violence. Prisoners like Bronson, Maudsley, Sykes have become more famous for their law-breaking within the perimeter of a maximum security jail that houses them than for the crimes that put them there in the first place. It's almost as if prison amplified their instincts and provided them with the stage where they could act out a near-perfect version of themselves. And these antics, whilst often hideously violent, also seem part of some perverse, never-ending game with officers and those in authority. 
is Leslie Cameron again. Queenie certainly fitted that description. It's certainly true that he was more violent inside prison than out. So it was prison that changed him? Uh, sadly, yeah. When you listen to these interviews, after he moves into the prison environment, you sense that he loves to talk using the prison vernacular, the inside banged up behind the wall. It's yet another anomaly. An erudite, highly educated man who makes no bones about his love of prison slang, which uttered with his usual rich, over-enunciated voice, makes for unusual listening. Doing a bit of bird, a brief two moon behind the door, spending hours down the hobbit shop, making enough to afford a roll of John Wayne. Certainly a few there I've never heard before. The hobbit the shop. prison workshop, where the brain-dead inmates are more than happy, whiling away their days engaged in soul-destroying menial tasks. Like hobbits. A, a, a roll of John Wayne, is that rhyming slang? No. Yeah, you prison vernacular can often be separated into the two groups. The first, based on cockney rhyming slang. So, for instance, I punched him in the John O'Groat while stood on the apples and pears, but the altercation was broken up swiftly by a kangaroo. Ah, a screw. You learn quickly, McGregor. The other is more synonym-based. A rule of John Wayne refers to the prison issue bog rule, which is so tough that it is called John Wayne because, as an actor, he was known for portraying tough rules. Oh, I see. Yes, very clever. I suppose you could have had a role of Lee Marvin, too. But that is a rhyming slang for something else. What? To describe a man being starving hungry. Ooh, I'm a little bit Lee Marvin. No, I think that was Hank. What was? I'm Hank Marvin, meaning I'm starving. No, no, I thought saying he was Hank Marvin meant he's skulking in the shadows. No, pretty sure it's used for starving. You see, there's so many new phrases, so much specific slang, and woe betide anyone that gets it wrong. So... There you are, after living a life of luxury in rarefied surroundings, and you're, you're suddenly banged up in Parkhurst behind the door on the Isle of Wight. After residing in a larger apartment next to a royal park, this must have been a very tough pill to swallow. Oh, you couldn't have imagined. My cell was the size of an unmarked grave, and the atmosphere not much better. Two beds, a toilet, a basin, and a small desk. Can you imagine such living arrangements? Almost inhumane. And yet marginally better than a hotel Ibis I was once forced to sleep in on a visit to Belgium. Were you alone in your cell? Unfortunately not. I was forced to share this unutterably miserable postage stamp-sized accommodation with a monosyllabic imbecile from Cumbernauld by the name of Doogie. As it transpired, Doogie was the first man that Queenie attacked. Although I grew up thinking that the pugilistic pursuits were more council estate than country estate, prison was where 
I was re-educated. I learned how to become a fighting machine. A fighting machine? Yes. Despite not looking like a pie-noshing, tattooed meathead from Walsall, I very quickly knew my way around a man's face. My first victim, Doogie, was a worm, always taunting me. And I can recall very clearly that afternoon. I was enjoying a few precious moments of solitude, engrossed in a little reading from a leather-bound volume of Evely Noir, finding my own business. And he began with his taunts. Hey, lady man! I ignored him. They began again and again, repeated over and over, poorly constructed words mumbled in his horrific thick brogue. Hey, lady man, don't you come near me in the shower, Paul, my bum's near for taken. I could take no more, and so I put down the book. I walked over to him and I placed my thumbs over each of his eyes. And I slowly began to squeeze, and I carried on squeezing harder and deeper, harder, feeling his eyeballs squelch as they burst in tandem. Do it to punctured pain. Oh, blissful, sickly liquid oozing down my Twists resemble raspberry panna cotta. I know. Absolutely chilling and genuinely horrifying. With Queenie becoming a violent offender with a propensity to use whatever implement was close to hand, well, this caused havoc, particularly at mealtimes. A former cellmate with whom he did get on quite well, Shirty Bertie, remembers those mealtimes with Queenie. He wasn't allowed cutlery for months. As a punishment. Because any implement was a weapon in the hands of Queenie. Now you'd hand him cutlery at your own risk. A fork to him was like getting a written invitation to abuse someone. The same with a spoon. <laughs> he could cause all sorts of havoc with a spoon. So being denied cutlery must have made mealtimes awkward. Frankly, it was a mess. Everything had to be scooped up with his hands like some sort of savage. It very well turned out savage nonetheless, because he never forgot his manners, even when he was on a diet of porridge and soup. It was messy. For a man that's so into being well presented, that sort of made him even more angry. Here's psychiatrist Nigel Puse again. Parkhurst seemed to galvanise all the previous childhood trauma that had been bubbling away deep within him. Now, whilst it never boiled over in his youth, we must assume that it was certainly percolating. Yes, he murdered the family pet, and that wasn't a frenzied attack, and, as far as we know, was an isolated incident. 
What was it that changed Queenie's behaviour? When listening to interviews about his earlier life and his life at home, at school, he never appears angry or disturbed. He's, he's very measured and forthright. It's definitely the behaviour of his father and the treatment, of course, of his mother by Hubert that really alters something in him and sets him on a course of wanting to do right by her. So incarceration must have been especially difficult, being locked away and now unable to help his mother. For sure. We know she was in a home, so he'd have been feeling guilty about that. We know that the house had fallen into disrepair and had been taken over by the receivers prior to being sold off to a hotel chain. So now he's locked up behind bars, forced to share a prison cell with men that he despises. He decides to almost reinvent himself entirely. And that reinvention comes with violence and lots of it. There's a blank canvas and he's determined to truly make his mark. And make his mark he does. That seemingly innocuous taunt about his campness from his cellmate Doogie and all the rage he'd been harbouring comes to a head at this tipping point. Once he attacks him, there really isn't any going back. He's reinvented himself and almost immediately he becomes a feared, violent prison inmate. And he's only just begun. Join me, Magnus Finch, next time on Queenie, Britain's most unlikely violent criminal, as he struggles to go straight. Queenie, Britain's most unlikely violent criminal. Written and produced by Steve First. With voices and music by Steve First. Additional voices by Debbie Chazen. <laughs>